So what's the best meal you've ever had? I want you to think about it for a minute. If you need to close your eyes to imagine, we're gonna, I'm going to risk it. I won't put you to sleep. But think about it. Was it a really juicy steak that had just the right amount of salt, cooked medium rare, just juicy? Or was it some fresh caught fish right out of the water onto the grill? What was that best meal you've ever had? I don't want you to go back to that time when you ate it. I want you to think about it. Did you just devour that? Did you just stuff it handful by handful into your mouth? No. Wouldn't that be a kind of a waste? You took bites, slowly chewed it, savored it. I see some of you. I'm going to have to wake you up. You savored that meal, didn't you? You let the flavors soak over your tongue, even as your stomach may have grumbled just a little bit because it was so good that you just wanted to dwell on that meal and let the flavors just overwhelm you. Well, that's what worship is. See, oftentimes we minimize our idea of worship and we think of worship particularly as singing songs and having beautiful music. Again, thank you. It's a good thing. That's part of worship. But worship is so much bigger. Worship is savoring God's glory. Missions is demanded not by God's failure to show his glory, but by man's favor, failure to savor God's glory. I'll say that again. Missions is not demanded because of God's failure to sh- somehow show his glory around the world. Rather, Missions is needed because of man's failure to savor God's glory, which then begs the question, what does it mean to savor God's glory? Well, it's worship, but it's worship that's a lot bigger than our Sunday morning. It's savoring God's glory is being worshipful through and through, throughout our lives, throughout our conversations, throughout our relationships. It is savoring God's glory. It is soaking it up. It is having an attitude in which all that we say and do is about bringing God glory. One of the most beautiful teachings in the entire Bible, in my mind, is not only just in general, it's one of my favorite texts, but it's the most beautiful teachings on worship comes in John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip to John chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 26. See, I'm going to set the stage for us because I think many of us are familiar with this story, but I want to remind us of what's going on because nothing with Jesus is accidental. You see, he's going on a journey through Samaria. And if you remember, the Jewish people would not travel through Samaria because they did not want to risk defilement by who? The Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were people who claimed to worship God, but they did so differently than the Jewish people. they, They were kind of theologically askew. And their heritage was one that as the people of God back in Jesus' day often viewed themselves as hereditary heirs of the promises of God. And the Samaritans were kind of outside of that. And so the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans because their theology was wrong because their ethnicity was wrong and because their ethics were slightly different. And so they were wrong. And Jesus 
not by accident, on purpose, travels through Samaria on his journeys, and he goes and sits at a historic well, Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well is just, it's, a, it's fascinating. It's not a place of worship, but it's a place, if you read in Genesis, where God acted. It's a place where God's presence was experienced. And so, for the Jewish people, though Jacob's well was outside of the bounds of where godly people would spend their time, it was a sacred place because it points to God's covenant relationship with his people and his historic action on their behalf. And so Jesus goes to this unique, special place and sits in the heat of the day. And we who live in Mississippi know you don't go do things in the middle of the day. It is not worth it. It's too hot. It's miserable. But for Jesus, it was worth it. Not because he wanted the water from the well, but because he wanted to talk to a woman. He wanted to talk to a Samaritan woman. He wanted to talk to a Samaritan woman who was an adulteress. He wanted to talk to a Samaritan woman whose life was a mess. And as he sat at the well, she came to him, and he wasn't shy. He spoke with her. He told her, I know who you are. And he called out her sin. But he did so gently and lovingly. And their conversation is one that is rich and beautiful because we see that the gospel is rich and beautiful as Jesus meets this unsavory woman and speaks words of love and grace to her and offers her water from which nobody will thirst again after having tasted. And she says, I want that water. Does this story ring true? It's my story, and it's yours if you've met Jesus. But where we go then is Jesus doesn't stop and say, be saved and, and go on your way. No, he tells her about worship. So John chapter 4, verses 20 to 26 is the, the conclusion of their conversation. If you would read with me, read along with me, this is the word of God. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is the word of the Lord. It is true and it is given in love. Let's bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As we consider what Jesus tells this woman, I'm actually reminded of one of the joys I get to have as a father is coaching soccer. I've got Ben's soccer team. They're eight-year-olds. And let me tell you, the kids have passion and they have energy. But they don't quite know what to do. 
And so we put them out on the field, and it's like cluster ball as they just run around and knock each other over, and it's a mess. My job is to help them understand where to be, when to be there, and what to do when the ball comes to them. They actually have the passion. They have the physical ability. They actually need to be trained. If we're going to have worship that is good and rich, if we're going to savor God's glory, then just like my kids, we've got to get some thinking right. And so we're going to have worship from top to bottom. All right? Many of us have maybe heard the head, uh, heart, and hands approach, right? Our worship is going to come through our head, affect our hearts, and motivate our feet. You see, the gospel has content. If I let these children run around on the soccer field without teaching them the game, they would never really grow in the game. Sometimes we experience a gospel transformation of some kind, but nobody really gives us the words of truth. We think that maybe worship is just being mesmerized by talent. That's not worship. Or we think that worship is falling on your knees and throwing your hands up. That might be part of worship, but that's not worship. Worship is being in a relationship with God. Worship is knowing God through the Son. And so if we don't have some of this content that Jesus is God, Jesus is the Savior sent by the Father, and that we are sinners needing to be saved, if we don't have some of that content, then our worship is just loud noises. It's a resounding gong. It lacks the, we lack the ability to savor God's glory because we're just savoring the works of men or an emotional response to something beautiful. So the gospel has content. We see that Jesus, when he meets with this woman, he corrects some of her theology. He's acknowledging that the Samaritans believe that they should worship on Mount uh, Gerizim instead of Mount Elba. Some of us might shrug and go, what's the difference? The difference is in the scriptures, God gives clear commands. And the Samaritans are, frankly, doing it wrong. They're being disobedient to the true teaching of God's word. And so Jesus doesn't, he doesn't just blow it off. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter. He says, no, 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 no. You all, she's, the, the, this woman is meeting Jesus and she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you say we should worship over there. And Jesus says, stop. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or Jerusalem uh, we will be worshiping. But the Jewish people, he says, salvation comes from the Jews doesn't he? He says that there is in fact truth. Our post-truth world, our post-modern notion that it's all relative, it's nonsense. It's dangerous. It's devastating. There is true truth, and that is the content of the gospel. God exists. He created the heavens and the earth. Mankind, part of his creation, rebelled against his good law, and as a result, sin entered the world and corrupted all of it. That's our story, but our story doesn't stop there because the gospel content is that God in his eternal plan and his love for his elect sent his son to die on the cross, that our sins might be nailed to the cross, that we might receive new hearts and live for God's glory. That is the content on which we place our hopes. That is the gospel to which we cling to. And without that, we are meaninglessly crying out in song that means nothing but we cling to this gospel content. And I want us to understand we're not saved because we're Presbyterians and we have right doctrine. That's not what we're saying here. Jesus has grace to her wrong belief. Verses 21 and 22, 
He tells her that, look, the hour is coming when worshipers, true worshipers, will be gathered. He doesn't tell her that we're going to go worship in Jerusalem. That's not what he corrects her on. He, he starts moving towards the heart of that gospel content. Relationship with God through the Son, the messianic hope that Jesus is and embodies. And so he gently corrects her, but there's an emphasis on truth. Look at verse 23. The, the word truth pops up several times. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. We can't worship in spirit and falsehood. That's not worship. We must worship in spirit and truth. And so he goes to the heart of the matter and says there is gospel content. It matters what we say and what we believe. And it all is wrapped around this messianic hope to which this woman was clinging. In many ways, you might say, he would look to her and say, you are so close to the kingdom of God. Because like our fathers before us, you were looking to that savior, that promised redeemer. He tells us actually in Matthew 15, we talked about worship and we're told that worship from, that is not from the heart is vain and empty. Because we see here, content, yes, but he says not just truth, spirit and truth. He's drawing from Isaiah 29 when we describe worship in this way. This is what, the Lord's, what, uh, what Isaiah 29, 13 uh, and 14 say. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the, discerning, uh, the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God tells us that the, the ways that we tend to build up our own religiosity, our own made-up rules, will never meet the demands of the law, and they will certainly never meet the demands of the new heart to which we are uh, given in Christ so we have worship in spirit that is in connection with God the Father through the Son, hearts that are affected by that truth. Our affections for the Father are shaped by what Jesus has done, and the content matters. And as we understand that our worship has to have a public component, and when I say public component, I'm not simply talking about the fact that we're singing together today. That's part of it. But if we are new creations... If this gospel is so true, if this content of the gospel really is true, then we can't help but respond. Right knowledge affects right affections, which gives right motivation for our actions. It's not merely private. See, Jesus' meeting with this woman is the kingdom of God breaking down the barriers that we always tend to put up. He's not supposed to talk to her because she's the wrong sort of person. She's from the wrong sort of place. Yet the Messiah comes to her and shares this beautiful news with her. And don't lose sight of what he tells her. It's not just about her. Verse 23, we're told that God is seeking people, right? The, the Father is seeking people who will worship in spirit and truth. He's passionately looking for the lost. He's passionately looking for the wrong sort of people from the wrong sort of place to draw them into his family. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. 
And so our obedience to God's will and His design means that we will be seekers of the lost as well because the gospel is true and it is worth it. And that's what savoring God's glory looks like. Savoring creates passion for the lost. As Jenna and I were, um, uh, what is this, almost 10 years ago now, beginning to raise our financial support to go as missionaries, I uh, set up a meeting with a good friend of mine. He had known me since my childhood, and I had actually ministered to his kids. So from a worldly perspective, you're thinking, slam dunk, this guy's going to give financial support so we can go to India to serve. And I met with him, and I I gave him a great presentation of the ways in which we were going to share the gospel with the lost in India and support the local church and all the good things we thought God had for us to do. And he looked at me, and I thought he was about to cry. I mean, he was, because you could tell he loved me. We still have, have a great relationship, but he said, I can't support you. And I was expecting maybe some sort of explanation of his finances. And he says, there, is, there are too many issues here for me to set, give you money to go over there. And of course, that cut me deep because I'm pretty passionate about world missions. And we finished up our conversation, and I was upset for a while. But then I started thinking about it. And I realized that he's partly right. And right now, there's a few people going, wait, we're supposed to be talking about world missions, and I'm undercutting world missions. Not at all. You see, our worship, our savoring of God's glory must not only be head to heart to feet, but it's got to be from the inside out. And here's what I mean. It's really easy for us to send our money and not engage. It's really easy. It even feels safer to let somebody else do the work. It, it lets us keep our distance and feel, feel as if we're doing a good thing without really engaging. But notice what goes on when Jesus meets this woman. Again, she's wrong in every way. She's religiously wrong, ethnically wrong, ethically wrong. But her heart was tender, and it was oriented toward, towards the messianic hope. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all that we need to know. She's craving this water that will nourish her soul, the unending well of God's grace. And she's eagerly anticipating that God will keep his promises and send the Messiah. Her heart was tender. Beloved, is your heart tender? Do you anticipate that the Holy Spirit will do something in your heart today? Do you anticipate that the Holy Spirit will work in you to give you boldness and courage and hope in a very broken world? Do you have a tender heart with anticipation that the Holy Spirit is in fact connecting you to Jesus Christ so that you are viewed by God as one with the Son? A delightful, beloved son and daughter of the king. Do you believe that? Do you have a tender heart towards that? This woman did. And so God incorporates us into his very bride. None of us, or I would say most of us, are not likely from the heritage that the Jews would have, would have demanded in that day. But Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is for outsiders to be brought in. And that starts with us recognizing our heart issue, our need to have renewed hearts. Mission starts right here. As we confess our sins and repent before the Lord, our new selves are a gift of grace. And so as we revel in that grace, as we savor the grace offered in the gospel, that gives us the ability to authentically live as the church 
here in Brookhaven, not only around the world, but here in Brookhaven. You see, right worship within our walls is really important to us, isn't it? But if it doesn't produce right worship outside of our walls, we're doing something wrong. So yes, we come, we savor God's glory, we honor him with our words, actions, and song this morning, but it's gotta go outside of these walls. Yes, we're gonna be excitedly pledging to give to world missions, but not at the expense of loving our neighbor well. Not at the expense of risking for God's glory here in Brookhaven. We are called to be saturated with the gospel because of God's grace. Acts 1, 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were thinking power and comfort. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father had fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's a both and, beloved. We can't, we can't focus here at the expense of global missions. That's disobedience. And we can't focus on global missions at the expense of the here and now. That's disobedience. Our savoring of God's glory will cause us to love our neighbor here and now and to passionately give to the work around the world because there is no salvation outside of the church. There is no salvation outside of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we get excited, not because we're compelled by obligation, but because we are those who have been forgiven, because we have tasted and seen the goodness and grace of our Lord. So our, our, our worship cannot merely be Sunday morning. It's got to be our daily actions. It's our daily repentance. It's our daily clinging to the gospel as God's loved children. So we go from worship from the head to the heart, to the feet. And we have worship that comes from the inside out. And finally, we need to have worship that exhausts and exhilarates. Many years ago, I got to go skiing in Vail, but here's the thing. I was a seminary student, which means I spent all of my time reading books and not doing things that were active. So I got to go to one of the more beautiful places in the world, strap skis on my feet and ski down the mountain. It was lovely, but by the end of the day, how do you think I felt? I mean, my legs were jello. I literally sat on my skis and just prayed not to hit a tree. I had so much fun that day. It was both exhausting and exhilarating. Our worship should be like that. You should leave worship Sunday morning exhausted from pouring your heart out to the Lord in praise and exhilarated, empowered because the gospel is true and good and the Holy Spirit empowers us for his work. And it doesn't stop here. So yes, our songs and study of God's word, they should be engaging our whole self. You should bring all that you have here and now this morning. It should be exhausting in that sense. Our, lit our liturgical pattern is one in which we relive the gospel every Sunday. We come in and acknowledge that God calls us to himself. We come in and praise him in song. We repent of sin and hear the assurance of pardon because the gospel is good and true. And then we continue to praise. We hear from his word. We expound God's word so that we might not only grow in understanding, but so that our affections for the Lord might grow. This is the life cycle of the Christian. And it can exhaust us, but it must exhilarate us as well. And so here's where we land this plane. 
we are not a whole lot different from this woman at the well. She was awaiting reconciliation. She knew how broken she was. When Jesus speaks to her, you could almost feel her heartbreak because she was known, and that is terrifying. It is terrifying to truly be known. But his words of grace were a comfort. So she was awaiting reconciliation. She was awaiting restoration. She was awaiting healing. And she knew that the long-promised Messiah, the Savior, God's promised one, would come in and usher in all that her heart longed for. The same is true for you and I. We are broken. Y'all, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And I know you are too. And we don't like to admit it publicly. I understand that. But I'm I'm a hot mess. And I come daily, every week to worship with you, knowing that this is only worthwhile if God does something. It's only worthwhile and good if the Holy Spirit acts. It's only good and worthwhile if the gospel is true. And because it is all yes and amen in Jesus, we come every Sunday with joy. We begin each day with hope, just like this woman from this day forward can, because what did Jesus tell her? This long-awaited Messiah the one who's going to fix all the wrongs, the one who's going to bring restoration and healing. Who is it? Jesus says, the one who is speaking to you is him. Jesus is looking this woman in the eye saying, I am your Savior, and I came to meet you. That is not an accident. It's a mystery to us why he would, why he would meet me, why he would meet you. But that's his delight. You are the gift the Father gives to the Son. And there are people around the world who have that same status, and they await the reconciliation and restoration that the Messiah brings. And so we today have the privilege, the joy, and the honor of praising God, worshiping in spirit and truth here and now. But let that word Soak through us. Let that worship be a savoring of God's glory that compels us to want to see God's glory extend into Brookhaven and around the world so that others like you and like me can savor God's glory. And so as we go from here, we will give our faith promise pledges. Maybe you've already been praying and had a lot of time to think about it. Maybe this is fresh on your mind. We're going to stand and sing all glory be to Christ. And as we stand and sing, we will have the opportunity to, uh, to promise knowing that the Lord is good and true and will give us the ability to engage in God's world missions, both with our hands and with our finances. Let me pray for us as we gather and get ready. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that the messianic promises, the hope of reconciliation is yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you that somebody who's a hot mess like me and a broken sinner like each and every one of us can come before you, knowing your grace, feeling your love, and then turn and share that with others. May our pledge and promises today be given by you in your power and your grace because you are not limited by the things of this world. And you give abundantly for your people and for your glory. And as we stand to sing, Lord, I pray that you would receive not only our worship but our hearts with delight. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If